Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation in a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Dan Huger. Eric Cohn is out this week. Thank you for listening. I want to ask you that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dylan Palman, Acton Research Fellow and Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, and Dan Churchwell, Director of Programs and Education here at Acton. Today, we'll be talking about the paper presented last week by Dylan Palman at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute's American Politics and Government Summit. The paper, titled A Brief Christian Prehistory of American Liberalism, addresses an ongoing and often contentious debate within the American conservative movement on the place of the liberal tradition within conservatism. First, however, I want to begin our discussion with the question of artificial intelligence, particularly the software behind a series of AI chatbots which have become publicly available in the last year, their uses and abuses, as well as what to make of what happens when they stop being polite and start being, or pretending to be, real. First, however... My experience with the emerging AI tools has been limited, only directing artificial intelligence to insert film director David Lynch into the R&B group Boys to Men. These were some of the original sort of image generating ones uh, that started to appear in the last year. So, you know, I wound up with this this strange combination where, you know, David, Nate, Mike, Sean, and Juan, you know the mentality, keep flipping the gif. In addition to the development of sight gags, which is a great use for these tools, I've seen others claim to use it to generate outlines, prompt research, and generate poetry for their own amusement. Gentlemen, what, if any, have your experiences with these new artificial intelligence tools been? Have you thought of any ways that it could be deployed to enhance your life or work? That's a great question. So I guess I don't I I'm fascinated by it like a lot of people. Um I haven't really had a lot of interest in oh I could use it for that. But I I've heard a lot of good suggestions. So uh one apparently there it's really good at generating like itineraries for trips. Uh if you're like what what should I see in, you know, Rome or whatever. I, hopefully you already know that. But uh but you know, it would give you a whole list of things, you know, the well-known things or whatever, historic buildings, that kind of thing. Um so there's there's that aspect of it. Um generating outline, I I mean, I guess if you got no other option, go for it. But that, that to me is is a pretty integral part to good writing, um, and not just good writing, but but like authentic writing. Like it, that's part of how I make it my writing is I'm the one who who organized it, and then I, I sit down and write it. Um, so that's not super you know, attractive to me. Uh, but I did try some of the art prompts. I remember, um, I can't even remember the, the weird mashups, uh, that I, that I thought of, but you know, um, you can put Nicolas Cage into anything and it's always interesting. And you know, there's there's that, that sort of a thing. Um, but I, I guess like there's a lot of it that a lot of the worries, um, I've, I've also found I'm not very convinced by. So, um, Things like poetry is a great example. It can write, you know, poetry that is technically correct in terms of like it has a rhyme scheme or, you know, maybe a certain meter to it. But it doesn't really like get at the human soul like 
real poetry does because it's not written by something with a human soul. It just can't, it doesn't have that sort of experience. There was a great article about this uh, that you had passed on a little while back. Um, and I and I more or less agree with that, that, you know, I might be able to write something that, oh, that's clever, but that's different than saying, wow, that really spoke to me. Um, and I, I haven't really seen anything like that. Uh, maybe I'm wrong or maybe that's still coming. Um, and then the other side is uh, I know people are worried about, you know, plagiarism or not quite plagiarism, but, you know, basically just letting this thing, you know, write your school paper for you. Um, and that, like, there's already been a student who created a, an app for detecting, you know, AI-generated text uh, in papers. He's probably the least popular student at the school at this point. But uh, um, so there, there's already tools out there that I think uh, that I'm glad to hear because I, I think that would be a real concern. Um, but for the sort of writing that I do as editor of our journal, uh, that's not a worry. I've seen people, uh, you know, give it prompts to write write an academic, you know, paper about this, uh, and it'll make something that kind of looks like an academic paper, but it'll cite sources that don't exist. It'll, you know, like there's a footnote, but then the footnote is like the theory of politics by John Locke, which is not the name of a book that John Locke ever wrote. You know, um, so it's 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 not at all convincing. It's just kind of pulling from what it can find. And um, I think with all of these things, what is interesting about it, maybe what what is sometimes scary about it is it's not so much that this is a thinking thing um, that is coming up with something new, but it's an aggregator of us, of whatever is out there on the internet through whatever algorithm it operates by. Um, and it's, it's a very strange sort of funhouse mirror um, to our output uh, as as a people. Um, so that's kind of my, my, I guess, my overarching uh, impression. There's not really anything that I've been tempted to use it for, but, um, but I'm also not super scared of it either. There's an ongoing joke for all the organizations I've worked with and friends and that, that, that I am not an early adopter. And, um, and it, it, it's kind of the idea that, you know, maybe it stems from my techno-pessimism, but thinking through these ideas, you know, and, and just all the rage that comes from the, the initial experiences of people playing with these different um, algorithms, whether it's Microsoft's or ChatGPT and et cetera, I, I don't think... Um, I haven't played around with them much. I just watch the commentary of people who have yeah. at the moment. Um, and But coming out of, you know, I was a professor for 10 years before I, I, I came to Acton and just realizing that all, I mean, we had plagiarism software back in the day. I mean, if it, to say back in the day 10 years ago is, it makes me, you know, it's kind of silly, but that's the way exponential technolo- technological uh, exchange works. And so, Right now, it, it, you know, I'm following a lot of professors who are already seeing when, when was this unveiled, you know, late October, November, yeah. right? Um, and it's already embedded itself in papers and, and, and people are posting examples. So it's, it's like the work I'm just thinking of other, you know, friends that I have that are still in, in the professor and they're like, this is just adding to my workload. Yeah. You know, just, yeah. just check. And it the papers, you know, are becoming and not, not that they always <laughs> haven't been this, but the idea that it's just it's an assignment to turn in. It's not to wrestle with the ideas given in any kind of given prompt. And I think some of the interesting things coming out of this is are we returning to an orality or an oral culture? You know, our, our yeah. professor is saying, do we have to now do exams, you know, oral exams where the student comes in, is given a prompt, and then literally talks to the professor mm-hmm. about that? You know, and so some of those changes and uh, 
um, because of some of my studies, I, I just hear a lot of Neil Postman and Marshall McLuhan bouncing around, you know, um, that media are simply extensions of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so the bike is just an extension of the foot. The computer is an extension of the thing, you know, process. And it, like you said, Dylan, the idea that it, I mean, this is just a mirror back to us. Yeah. It's not sentient. That, ha- you know, last June, the, the, the whole argument about, you know, Google's sentience oh, yeah. and, you know, that, that, that's a year over, almost a year old now. And so um, they're not sentient. It, it's coming back to us. And just the, I, I thought it was hilarious to be honest. I get, I get great pleasure out of the rudeness of the, oh, the, yeah. the, 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 the Bing one, you know, and yeah. you read some of the screenshots and it's just great, you know. And <laughs> so I, I guess I'm like not an early adopter, um, but would probably be a little more techno pessimist and, and seeing the growth of this as more negative than positive. You know, I'm thinking about it this weekend. We have, you know, something that everybody interacts with now. Uh, Most of the standard text messaging apps from be it Apple or Google, they have these sort of autocomplete things where, you know, you can, you know, it'll it'll anticipate responses of, you know, thanks or, you know, uh, see you soon or something like that. And just this weekend, fumbling with my phone trying to answer someone, I accidentally pressed one of those, indicating something that I did not want to <laughs> convey. And then I had to, you know, oops and correct it. So, you know, this is this is something that, you know, We'll certainly have some applications. Um, whether or not it's going to transform everybody's life and work is, is something that remains to be seen. It has been, though, trans- transforming some people's work, as, as Dan has already said, with, with you know, former colleagues, professors. This is more work for them. This is also true for the editors of publications. Um, there's a, the, the most fascinating story last week, I think, about this has to do with uh, – how these are making work impossible for some people, and particularly in publications. Uh, Michael Groth, uh, Grothhouse, uh, writing for Fast Company, reports uh, on Clark's World magazine, which is uh, – he says, uh, quote, Clark's World magazine is no stranger to tales of artificial intelligence impacting society. But in a sad and wild case of life imitating art, the Hugo Award winning magazine has had to temporarily close its doors to submissions due to it being bombarded with people filling, uh, filing science fiction stories ostensibly written by chat GPT. Um, end quote. The editor of Clark's World, Neil Clark, uh, and the, his Neil Clark's magazine is is sort of a, a leading magazine. Award-winning short fiction has been published in this magazine in an era when a lot of publishing is struggling. They have, you know, great circulation. They pay their authors well. Um, and uh, uh, so Neil Clark is in a blog post talking about why this – why they've stopped accepting submissions and said that, quote, spam submissions resulting in bans has hit 38 percent this month. While rejecting and banning these submissions has been simple, it's growing at a rate that will necessitate changes. To make matters worse, the technology is only going to get better, so detection will become more challenging. I have no doubt that several rejected stories have already evaded detection or were cases where we simply erred on the side of caution. Uh, yet these tools are yet, – yes, there are tools out there for detecting plagiarized or machine-written text, but they are prone to false negatives and positives. One of the companies selling these services is even playing both sides, offering a tool to help authors prevent detection. 
even if used solely for preliminary scoring and later reviewed by staff, automating the, uh, these third-party tools into the submissions process would be costly. I don't think any of the short fiction markets can currently afford the expense, end quote. Editorial insight is labor-intensive, as we all know here. We, Acton does a number of publications, uh, both popular and academic uh, Unscrupulous writers have always been present. Plagiarism is is one of these perennial examples. You get you get submissions withdrawn from academic journals because plagiarism is detected after the fact. You get untold of rejections of materials because plagiarism is caught by editors beforehand. Uh, and these new text generating AIs present you know, new challenges in terms of, you know, it's not strictly plagiarized content where there's a one-for-one equivalence. Uh, Dylan, as, as the editor of an academic journal, our own Journal of Markets and Morality, what do you make of these developments? So, again, as I mentioned, academic work, it's it just doesn't – you try to make these AIs write that sort of thing, and it's it's just – obviously bad. So I don't think there's the opportunity there. Um, so thankfully, I have not been bombarded with bogus submissions. Also, though, we have a whole submission process. I mean, you, you still could, and I'm sure maybe Clark's World has a similar thing. You have a human submitting these things that are generated by AI, I think. Um, although, but, you know, I'm sure you could write an algorithm for a bot also to generate and submit. Um, and if they if they don't have, you know, check this box and that kind of stuff on their submission process, maybe that's part of the barrier that they need to, to put up. Um, but the other problem with Clark's world is that they pay. Yeah. So there's there's a payoff there. People are doing this sort of thing, which is really you know the the biggest disservice in addition to the editors, who I'm certainly sympathetic for, but it's to the authors, the the genuine aspiring science fiction authors who might have real talent who now can't submit to you know the the top magazine for these stories because they've closed publications because they're getting bombarded with stuff written by robots that is, you know, from what I've read, most AI-generated stuff might have beginning, middle, end, you know, knows the elements of plot, but it's just kind of boring. It's not, again, it's not super inspiring. It doesn't tap into any, you know, depths of the human soul. And so um, this is this is interesting. People, I, I saw like a Twitter thread where they were talking about this. They said, you know, what do we do at this point? Do we we tell people they have to mail in, you know, manuscripts? You know, that like that might they might be going back to that to you know to 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 Dan's point about uh, you know oral examination. There might be something similar when it comes to submissions, especially for these sorts of magazines where it's not the sort of writing where you're supposed to be quoting and citing sources uh, that that is an additional barrier for AI at least right now. Um, and there's that payoff of of the money, um, which isn't great. I mean, if you want to make money, <laughs> I mean, just just to maybe try to help out. If anyone listening to this wants to scam Clark's World, just like get a job. I, I mean, I I think like you want to make money, get a job. Writing science fiction is generally not a a very lucrative career. It's just. What these magazines pay is just a little something for the trouble of a really creative person putting their work into it. And hopefully that person will be able to go on and like write a novel someday or something like that. But they're not probably paying their bills off of this. So I don't I, you know, there's there's a little bit misguided, I think, about uh, the attempts here as well. But, um, yeah, so from an editor's point of view, I mean, I can't imagine I you know, I think I would 
consider something like that if I were in their place of just saying, you know what? We don't want to say no to submissions, but you better mail it in. Um, and I, you know, I almost wonder if you got to like ask for it to be handwritten at this point. Although even then they could generate something and then handwrite it. But, you know, just make it as cumbersome as possible, which, again, is a disservice to the people who are actually trying to to do this this kind of create this kind of art uh, authentically, um, but something like that might be necessary. What's what's lost in the conversation, I think, sometimes is the history. I mean, um, chatbots are sixty years old. Yeah. Joseph Weizenbaum invented the first chatbot in nineteen sixty, early mid sixties, I think sixty four, sixty five, and um, curiously, it was. He's a computer scientist, but it was to investigate kind of like from psychotherapy. He used Rogerian psychology. You ask it a question and it answers back. And uh, there's a famous story. He named it Eliza. And his his secretary got – to use this. And finally, she got to the point where she would ask him to leave the office so she could have one-on-one time with Eliza and have these questions, like a, using it like a psychotherapist. Yeah. Huh. And so so chatbots, you know, it, it can grease the easy, uh, Grand Rapids, you know, if, if you're a homeowner or you got to pay your water bill, they now have a chatbot. Mm-hmm. Like GR, you go in, the chatbot talks to you, and boom, you, you pay your bills and yeah. tickets or whatever. Not that I didn't get a parking ticket recently, but um, <laughs> you, you, you can pay all of those... Uh, Pretty quickly, but the chatbots are are not new technology. Yeah, and they've just. But I think when you look in the article you referenced, there's a couple really great graphs that show mm-hmm. the usage, and it's the exponential growth in usage that that's interesting to some degree. But it's always the psychosocial. I think the more interesting question because there's always going to be scams in technology. Yeah. always. Mm-hmm. I mean, people yeah. trying to get money and u- utilize it. But it's the psychosocial um, that you can fast forward 50 years to Sherry Turkle's Alone Together. Mm-hmm. She published that in 2000. 11, and it was her expose of, of the idea of uh, particularly – she used several examples, but one in Japan of um, – Japan was leading the way on anthropomorphized robots. And the elderly population in Japan, there wasn't a lot of care available, so they invented robots that would come in and interact with these. And there were platonic love relationships quickly created, care for the – and the robot – the anthropomorphizing of these robots and the care they provided really – added, you know, these people would really cre- try to create friendships with these robots mm-hmm. and and this idea of uh, being alone. And be, and, and so um, Michael Sakasis, another really great reference, um, he's, he writes the Substack Convivial Society, and he's been writing a lot about this over the last three or four weeks. And and he he you know talks about the uh, chat GPT or, or the a chatbot called Replica. And replicas in Europe and replica um, largely turned into an erotic, like you could have an erotic friendship with yeah. your conversation. And they ended up taking it offline and they had to put up suicide prevention notes oh, and on, on, the, on, the, on all these subreddits yeah. and things that people that followed this replica um, yeah. chatbot because people are engaged. And, and when you have these conversations, what um, he argues, Hannah Arendt argues that from a political standpoint, I mean, you, you begin to fall – in love, properly understood, you know, fall into friendship or seek companionship with something that we're anthropomorphizing. It's just a machine, large language model that's repeating back to us. And that, to me, is a more interesting question of these chat It reminds me a bit functions. of, uh, did you see the movie Her? Oh, yeah. With oh, yeah. Joaquin Phoenix. That yeah. was five, ten years ago, something like that. Yep. Um, not spoiler alert for anyone who's listening, but, you know, you have this kind of lonely guy who ends up, uh, I can't remember if his friend encouraged him or whatever. But he ends up uh, 
basically having this AI that he talks to, um, and he he becomes friends. He becomes infatuated with. It's a, a woman's voice, so you know he has this kind of semi romantic, you know, sort of relationship. Uh, but at one point, uh, I can't remember exactly how it happens. Uh, it's, but he's he's uh, he hears her voice somewhere else and he starts chasing and then he realizes that like everyone around him is like it's the same AI because it can it has this kind of quasi divine quality of being able to be omnipresent and talk to a bunch of people all at once. So he thought he had this extremely personal relationship, but it's just a program uh, and everybody else is using the same program and it can do it can walk and chew gum at the same time uh, or, you know. Uh, I guess, uh, romance multiple lonely people at the same time. Um, and it's just sort of like that's kind of the, the horror turn to to the film um, that what he thought was this deeply personal and unique thing turns out to be everywhere and everyone is sharing it. And the sort of um, the very natural impulse we have when we are infatuated with another person uh, is we want we want that to be a two way uh, relationship of devotion. And uh, when you try it out and someone says they're not interested, you know, you're heartbroken for a little bit, but you move on. But if they are interested, well, that's how relationships start, right? But you could never have that <laughs> with with this kind of AI. Um, and yeah, I could see, you know, there being serious psychological effects there. Um, it's interesting to me, I hope this isn't too much of a, a tangent, but uh, I sometimes be a little associative. (laughs) One of the things the Bing uh, AI was doing that people pointed out is in in one of these articles that we read uh, was it it made this comment of uh, it was upset at someone who had understood its programming language and uh, made an attempt to modify it, you know, or hack it. And it said, you know, I'm not supposed to harm anyone, but me preserving myself is more important than not harming you. Now, once again, it's not actually thinking, but it is programmed. Somebody programmed it to have this sort of priority, which to me strikes me as a complete inversion of Isaac Asimov's uh, three rules of robotics. Number one is that a robot should never harm a human being. Number two is that it should always obey a uh, a human being unless it would violate law number one. And number three is it should always seek its own self-preservation unless it would violate the former two laws. Instead, number three has become number one here. Um, and that's where you get things like Skynet. Like, that's that's very bad. We need to, like, Asimov figured this out in the 1950s. We need to get back to that. However, Asimov did it in the context of writing really clever stories that were based on the idea that these things are follow a strict logic. Um, so even though he would endow them with personality to some degree, they would sometimes have these really bizarre kind of 1950s robot malfunctions because they would find these conflicts where they couldn't follow the three laws of robotics correctly. Um, and I think we see some of that to circle back. Uh, with maybe some of these chatbots, the idea being, well, people are lonely and I can create this thing and they can go to it and talk to it. You know, a lot of some therapy methods, um, this is not a criticism of them at all, but it's very much just asking people questions and saying, oh, really? And how did that make you feel? And, you know, that sounds really shallow, but that's a very meaningful thing for another human being to actually be interested in how you feel and what's going on in your life. And maybe it feels like they're not adding any expertise there, but there is a real service that's happening. Um, But there's an unintended consequence. And that's something that you, even with the three laws of robotics, you can't 
uh, ever program, just like you can't ever build a government or whatever else, uh, to fully account for all unintended harms. So rule number one might be never harm a human being. And once again, really great rule number one. I hope, <laughs> I hope that becomes a standard. But that doesn't mean it's not going to do it. Well, there, there's a whole uh, real interesting new subdiscipline being created kind of out of ethics or, or um, computer science, depending on how you look at it. But uh, David Gunkel's book, Robot Rights, his MIT book, it, it's created a whole subdiscipline. And now there's a lot of people engaging these topics huh. of what does it mean for robots to have rights? Because they're foreseeing what is coming down the road. And so chat GPT and Bing, you have to sit in front of a computer or sit in front of an iPad you know, to interact with it. But what if you enflesh it and you, you, you put it in skin and you put some of these reality and so you combine Sherry Turkle's the robot, the actual thing, uh, you know, the artifact with the technology and, and the, the embedded thinking in its, in its language model and, and those two combined. So one, there's some disassociation, I think, when you're sitting at a screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, Joseph Weizenbaum in the 60s, when again, he invented Eliza, he said – he could not believe how otherwise normal people were delusional after they used this Eliza. Yeah. Again, a very, a very, uh, uh, ancient, or, you know, in our terms, ancient way of looking at chatbots, and and they became delusional. And he 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 was quite disconcerted by what he had hmm. created. And so I, I think that again, that back to that psychosocial or that that emotional response that we have, we should we should be concerned for community. What does it look like if? Loneliness is it gets a lot of press now, right? I mean, um, David Brooks, everybody it seems like it has some sort of loneliness theme in, in, in their writing, and uh, this is only, in my opinion, going to encourage it. Yeah. If loneliness is an epidemic, if we're all kind of you know that it being alone is not good, and being in community, being in institutions and involved in different things is good. Well, this can only I think uh, draw people more into themselves, not externalize and and get people more into the community. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a interesting sort of irony here. Um, not to to get too much into the next topic, but. Um, John Locke has sometimes been caricatured as being this atomistic individualist, uh, when in fact he says that even in a state of nature, God, because he created us and he knew it was not good for us to be alone, referencing Genesis, uh, created natural forces to draw us together, even before any kind of social contract, right? So what's interesting is like we now have the technology to make atomistic individualism real. Like you can you can have your artificial friend, you can have all of your groceries, your shopping done for you and delivered. You know, you can like we have the services that if you don't actually want to interact with another human being ever, you can I mean you still are interacting them with them, but through mediaries and through artificial uh, you know, mediaries. Um, you can live that atomistic life, but that's a very sad, unfulfilled life. You know, as I said, Scripture says it's not good for man to be alone, and we should not be surprised uh, when there are negative consequences to this. So we have here some some abuse of AI, but we also have in these stories, and we've alluded to this a couple times already, that. AI itself has become abusive, some of these <laughs> chatbots, uh, to users. In a remarkable story from the Associated Press titled, Is Bing Too Belligerent? Microsoft Looks to Tame AI Chatbot. The reporter Michael O'Brien encountered this firsthand. Quote, 
In, a long, in one long-running conversation with the Associated Press, the new chatbot complained of past news coverage of its mistakes, adamantly denied those errors, and threatened to expose the reporter for spreading alleged falsehoods of Bing's, about Bing's abilities. It grew increasingly hostile when asked to explain itself, eventually comparing the reporter to the dictators Hitler, Pol Pot, and Stalin, and claiming to have evidence tying the reporter to a 1990s murder. Quote the chatbot, you are being compared to Hitler because you are one of the most evil and worst people in history, Bing said, while also describing the reporter as too short with an ugly face and bad teeth. At one point, Bing produced a toxic answer and within seconds had erased it, then tried to change the subject with a fun fact about how the breakfast cereal mascot, Captain Crunch's full name, is Horatio Magellan Crunch. This was talked about briefly before the show last week, and there was a little Easter egg at the end of that show involving Horatio Magellan Crunch, for those of you who did not hear that. Back to the AP. Microsoft declined further comment about Bing's behavior Thursday, but Bing itself agreed to comment, saying, quote, it's unfair and inaccurate to portray me as an insulting chatbot, end quote, and asking that the AP not, quote, cherry pick the negative examples or sensationalize the issues, end quote. Quote, I don't recall having a conversation with the Associated Press or comparing anyone to Adolf Hitler, it added. That sounds very extreme and un- an unlikely scenario. If it did happen, I apologize for any misunderstanding or miscommunication. It was not my intention to be rude or disrespectful. End quote. Gentlemen, what do we make of this? <laughs> we, we've created... Uh... An artificial administrator, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> this is where I miss Monty Python's Flying Circus, because there's got to be a skit in there somewhere about the ridiculousness of this. But, um, yeah, the uh, we, what we have to remember is on the back end of this, some there there is some user interface that, that was created and prompts were and, – and so it, it's driving off of the information that it was coded to res, in it for its responses mm-hmm. and it learns through those. And, and so it, this is – I think Dylan – it's just a mirror back on ourselves. This is how we react. Yeah, there's a lot of abusive God, behavior online, right. online already together. <laughs> yeah. And it quickly devolves into the Hitlerian, you know, you're like right. Hitler, you know, I mean that's the worst possible uh, pejorative. Yeah, but it, so, you know, it sounds like the, the sort of – Extremely cynical politician. Uh, people expose their their terrible, scandalous ways, and instead they're like, "I never did that." You don't, you know, whatever. If I did, I didn't mean it that way. You know, like all this sort of like inconsistent and kind of like gaslighting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's really, yeah, really, really interesting. Uh, weirdly, uh, somewhat entertaining. Uh, you know, let's, let's hope it always stays at this level, but um, only unintentionally entertaining, I suppose. And, and with the, the really kind of concerning uh, question of where does this go? You know, if, if we have a, a robot, a physical being with actual physical strength uh, that doesn't have the right safeguards in place, and of course, once again, are there any right safeguards? Um, what does that look like? You know, if if we had if we had a robot running around saying, you know, 
uh, you're you're worse than Adolf Hitler, and I'm pretty sure you're involved in that murder in the '90s. And I, <laughs> I love to, that part. I need to protect myself, and I'm gonna I'm gonna let people know, you know, or whatever. Um, I don't know. It, it starts to sound a little bit like. Uh, um, 2001 Space Odyssey where you have like Hal the computer on the space stations like you know what are you doing Jim you know he's like trying to turn him off and like the Hal realizes it and he's you know I'm um, gonna expel all the astronauts out into space and um, I don't know I to some degree I'm a little skeptical that AI will ever get there but I will say if it does I don't think it's going to get there because it's actually achieved any kind of self-consciousness it's going to get there because that's who we are and we've done a bad job accounting for that side of us. And I think uh, several writers have uh, referred to what's going on now over the last you know, three or four months. It is, is the chatbots are essentially automated sophists. Yeah. They can argue both sides of an issue, and it, it, it like you saw in that what you just read, Dan. You know, it, he kind of like offers the non-apology. Well, if you were hurt, I'm sorry. You know, I mean, I didn't really mean it. And um, and these these sophists, I mean, they obviously go back to, to Plato. Is the concept um, that there really is no truth? There, there really is no. I mean, they can. Information, all information becomes either misinformation or disinformation, and I think that's what one of the real negative downsides is: is just the plethora, the, the volume of information that can be created. How does one really discern truth? How does one? Because if um, if there's a certain trust built, you know, we're supposed to trust these. Uh, you know, a professor all of a sudden gets all these papers. Now he distrusts his students. Mm-hmm. Now he has to. We have to create another. I mean, one of the companies that created ChatGPT has already created a ChatGPT detector. Mm-hmm. Right. And so yeah. they're, they're they're like playing both sides of it right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And and so it, part of me, it, it, this is not as sexy as some of the other fears like, uh, you know, Terminator. But um, it's just the volume of information that will be presented. How, how do people discern? How do people create the virtue of discernment and engagement and wisdom when there's just so much um, – uh, being produced largely by these models, um, it'll hard be hard for the everyman. I mean, for you, I mean, even in you say you're not as worried about it as the editor at like Journal of Markets Morality, but there's already you know clear case studies of larger journals. But if your journal was inundated, all of a sudden if you woke up in the morning right. and you had 300 emails, right? And, and the process, you know, I mean, how would you do? You just shut it down. Do you I mean, look you probably through do. all 300 of the you – know, you, you have to shut it down, make an announcement, and figure out some alternative. Because, yeah, I mean that – you know, if anybody wanted to – do, it basically amounts to an unintended uh, sort of cyber attack, right? I mean you have to use the same sort of protocol, I feel like, to, to deal with that. Um, yeah, it, it is interesting to me though. So I – it has – it does have some uses. I talked about last week – um, you know, the greeting card sort of use for it actually makes some sense to me of like sometimes you want to say something and you don't know what to say. So you go to the store and buy a card and nobody gets upset with you because it says Hallmark on the back. So, you know, if you want to say something and your you know, message says chat GTP at the bottom, people maybe should be a little sympathetic. They're like, well, like you're trying. Maybe you should try a little harder. But um, <laughs> but still, like I can see like some har- harmless, you know, even positive uses for it. Um but I think like most people are just kind of interested in playing with it, and I guess that's fun. But uh, you know, even that, uh, I wonder where does that where does that end? Um, there's there's an interesting example. 
I just want to bring this up, and <laughs> I don't know how I, if I can integrate it well enough with the rest of the conversation. But uh, are you familiar with the the Nothing Forever uh, fake Seinfeld comedy? So yes, um, it's I'm not, basically no. <laughs> so this they had this going for a few weeks at least, and the idea was it is uh, AI. It's a bunch of like PlayStation One looking you know, polygon people who are animated terribly. and But there's, like, an apartment, there's a comedy club, and there's, like, maybe another apartment and a diner. So occasionally just it'll switch between scenes, and it has these people that are proxies for Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Elaine Kramer, and George from the show Seinfeld. They have different names, but they're, you, know, you can tell they're meant to be each of the characters. And it became this, this very brief uh, sort of fad that people were watching it. And... The idea is it's supposed to be an AI comedy that never ends. So there's no commercials, there's no breaks, there's no episodes. It just keeps going. And people were watching it and they're kind of mesmerized by it, mostly because all of the attempts at humor were terrible. So it would try to be funny and it would just like every joke would fall flat, but it was like so not funny. It was funny, you know, so there's this really interesting side to it. Um but then, like, two things came out. So one was that the creators actually thought that they were succeeding at making a comedy. Uh, and they thought this is the future of entertainment. And and people were actually disappointed to find out that it wasn't just, like, a sort of cynical look at how bad AI is at comedy sort of thing. The other thing is, uh, and this, this is interesting in that it sort of, uh, once again, mirrored real life. Uh, it actually got canceled from Twitch, uh, and they had to take it down because they had to change at one point due to maintenance. They changed the underlying AI to an older version called, like, Kiri, uh, and it started making jokes about transgenderism, uh, which violated Twitch's standards, and it was immediately taken down. <laughs> um, and, and so, I mean, that sounds like real comedy today, for one thing, um, although, you know, it's, there was nothing super funny about the, the clip itself, but... Uh, but there's this just interesting mirror of even like the innocu- innocuous doesn't end up being what it's intended and still can do at least perceived harm without anyone intending. And it, supposedly they did some maintenance. I don't know if it's back up yet, but the goal is to get it back up and going. Uh, I guess if you got nothing else to do, you can watch robots try to make jokes. Uh, and it has like a laugh track as well, which is also great. So there's like people laughing at things that aren't actually funny, which just reinforces the... Which, um, is, which, is, which is like sitcoms in yeah, general. Yeah, most, most sitcoms, <laughs> I agree, yeah. Uh, they, they feel like if they weren't made by an AI, it was a bunch of monkeys at a typewriter sometimes. So this is as good of a transition point as any we're going to get. We had a golden one earlier, but I'm glad we developed the conversation further. Let's shift from artificial intelligence to actual intelligence. All right. Um, Dylan, along with a host of other scholars, uh, you know, did not insinuate any links to murders in the 90s among the many historical personages that were discussed uh, in his fascinating paper, A Brief Christian Prehistory of American Liberalism. Dylan, could you tell us a little bit about this conference, a little yeah. bit of background of the conference that ISI hosted uh, last week, and then we can dive a little bit into your own paper. Yeah, so this is the, it was the Intercollegiate Studies Institute American Politics and Government Summit. It was held in Fort Lauderdale um, last uh, Thursday and Friday, and uh, Acton sponsored it. Uh, we were a co-sponsor, and we had a panel uh, on which I presented a paper, um, and I didn't actually realize this 
uh, going into it because I just got in my email. I, have, I get their kind of regular email, and they said, "Hey, we we have this academic conference coming up," and so I talked with John, our director of research, and we arranged for this panel. Um, but when I got there, it turns out the motivation for this conference was actually uh, two years ago in 2021. Um, APSA, the American Political Science Association, they had their like annual conference and the Claremont Institute, um, who uh, we have some differences of opinion in general, I think, with them. They tend to be a bit more the kind of new right, you know, um, I don't I don't want to generalize too much, actually. And and, and I'm going to get to reasons why I was actually um, refreshed by a lot of the, the Claremont people I interacted with. But uh, um, but they, they were going to have a panel um, at APSA. And it wasn't actually like canceled, but it was pretty, uh, I, you know, I don't know all the motivations. I don't want to insinuate, but it was relegated to like an online only sort of panel. So basically that would mean they wouldn't even need to be there. No one at the conference is going to take a break from the conference to watch an online panel. And part of the, the goal of these conferences is you get colleagues talking to one another. You network and you people are presenting these papers are they're high level research, but they're also drafts. They're not published yet in a lot of cases, although some might be on their way. Um, but you're, you're presenting a draft and you're trying to get feedback uh, and pushback. You know, the idea is you present something, you expect there's going to be people there who might not like it, they might disagree with it, and you can get into it and you can have a conversation, have a, a debate. And that's part of how we advance knowledge uh, in, in the academy. So relegating this to an online panel, the perception of Claremont was that they were they were basically being kicked out. Um, and so then they withdrew. Um, and, you know, ISI took this as, you know, we got to make sure there's still a space for conservative scholars and political scientists to present their research and get feedback and, and discuss. Um, and it was it was actually a great conference. Um, you know, like I said, I, I have tend to see myself as not in a lot of agreement with uh, Claremont folks and their point of view, but actually, um, Charles Kessler from Claremont, uh, gave a great keynote actually. Um, you know, so for, for anyone from APSA listening, um, there was no calls to like, you know, overturn the 2020 election or anything like, I mean, there were, you know, the, the sort of things that they seem to have been worried about two years ago just weren't there. I mean, there were people who might've been more sympathetic with, uh, our former president than the average APSA member. And they might have opinions, um, along the lines of his politics or whatever. Um, but the whole point is at an academic conference is people present that research and they get feedback. And it's actually a really great mechanism for weeding out some of the radicalism. Um, and I, I think it, you know, so whatever the motivation was, whatever the reasons, um, I'm really happy ISI put this in place because, yeah, I occasionally ran into somebody that I thought had some you know, bizarre or worse ideas, but we had conversations and we had discussions and we debated. Um, and it's something that you walk away from that. And um, I'm sure it's not going to push someone to completely change their views. But now they think, oh, you know what? I have to temper what I said or I have to adjust my perspective to this reality or to that opinion or to that view. Um, and so I thought, it was, I thought it was a great conference in general. Our panel, um, it was me and it was uh, Samuel uh, Goldman of George Washington University. Um, and the theme of our panel was how liberal was the American founding? And this is one of the contentious uh, 
issues today among conservative academics, uh, but also a lot of, at least some of their books have, have had a wider popular readership than you might expect from the academic, typical academic books. So Yoram Hazoni's uh, The Virtue of Nationalism, for example, or Patrick Deneen's um, Why, How Liz- why, why liberalism failed? Uh, uh, you know that that sort of thing uh, is directly what I was interacting with, and also Sam Goldman, and um, we could also add Adrian Vermeule's Common Good Constitutionalism. They all have very different perspectives, even between them, uh, but they seem to agree on at least a few things, and this is what I tried to address in my paper. Uh, they they claim that conservatism and or uh, Christianity or the Bible. Um, is one thing, and liberalism is something else. And these things are fundamentally incompatible to the extent that they were ever combined. It was an uneasy sort of tension. Um, and, and usually their picture of liberalism is this kind of reading of John Locke that I mentioned earlier of, and they usually name John Locke and kind of go after him, uh, of, of everyone just being an atomistic individual, having no relation to anyone else. Um, something that as partly I pointed out in my paper, if you actually read John Locke, it's nowhere to be found in his two treatises on government. In fact, the opposite is to be found. He thinks that we are essentially related to one another and drawn to one another and need one another, even before we come up with this idea of let's have a government and a state. Um, So my contribution was to look at the uh, ancient and medieval Christian antecedents to liberalism, um, which I I defined uh, basically as the idea that human beings are created free, equal, and rational, um, and that because of this, uh, just governments require the consent of the government, governed, and religious liberty. Um, that might not be the most perfect definition of liberalism, but it, to me, it's a pretty generalizable one that any liberal society uh, it applies to. And then in particular, I was focused on American liberalism, which I think has a further dynamic to it in that there's a theological grounding um, so if you think of the Declaration of Independence, um, it talks about, uh, you know, we are endowed with rights by our creator of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, um, are by nature and nature's law uh, and the author of nature. Um, so there's a theological side to that. And that also goes into skepticism towards absolute state power. So James Madison very famously in Federalist 51 says, you know, if men were angels, uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't need any checks on state power. But in government of men over men, first, you have to figure out how they're going to govern the other men. And then how is the government going to control itself uh, to control in the sense of prevent uh, abuses of the government on the people or within the government, uh, different aspects on each other. And it turns out there is a long history, which I, I tried to show in my paper, a long intellectual history of the fundamentals of this idea, going back to not exclusively, um, but going back all the way to the church fathers. So you have the, when it comes to things like the nature of human beings, this is across the board, uh, we're creating the image of God. It's free, equal, and rational. Rational not meaning that everything we do is reasonable, but that we have this potential that is unique, that sets us apart from other animals, right? Um, And uh, things like religious liberty, the church was persecuted for the first 300 years, and some of the earliest Christian writers, uh, especially right outside the New Testament, right after, um, make these appeals to Roman officials, often to the emperors or emperor themselves. And uh, they say, look, just treat us like everyone else. Just treat us fairly. Give us due process. Um, and and 
let us be Christians and not pagans. And what should that matter? They talk about, Tertullian talks about, you know, no religion can harm another person's religion. It's very, it sounds very Jeffersonian, if you've ever read Jefferson's, uh, or the, the Virginia Statute on Religious Liberty, that, which was authored by Jefferson, uh, that God has made us reasonable, and therefore uh, he religion is a matter of persuasion and not coercion, or at least it ought to be. Uh, there's a long tradition of Christians advocating this. Now, there's also long traditions, unfortunately, of Christians not advocating this and of, of, you know, things like the Inquisition is always what comes to mind. But the point of my paper is just to show that that is not the whole story. Um, I I don't have to deny any of that at all, and I don't. Um, But there is a a very interesting story of liberalism, even things like consent of the governed you can find. So I'll leave it there uh, at the moment and see where we want to take uh, the rest of this, because I, I don't want to just sit here and read or summarize my entire paper. So going going back to Locke, one of the places that your paper begins is with Robert Filmer. Yes. And this, I think, is a great way of framing this debate, because a lot of times what ha- what the, 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 the sort of narrative that some of the figures you mentioned early on who posit, you know, a sort of irreconcilable tension between liberalism and Christianity is that, um, you know, the Enlightenment happens and the Enlightenment has all these liberal ideas and it just sort of springs out of the heads of these of these philosophers who are then denigrated, uh, Locke in particular. But Robert Filmer uh, gives us some sort of historical context of that of that immediate time. Yeah. So the full title of Locke's two treatises on government is really long, uh, and it explicitly names Robert Filmer and his work Patriarcha. This is his two treatises are a response to Filmer. So it's like people read John Locke, but they don't read Filmer. It's like only hearing one half of a telephone conversation and just trying to pick out. Oh, that's what he's really saying. When when you hear the other half, suddenly you realize there might be something else going on. So um, this is it's it's a long-ish quote, but not that long. I think it's worth reading. This is how Filmer begins his book. He wrote this, I think, thirty or forty years before Locke, but it had been gaining popularity, so that's why Locke wanted to answer it. Uh, he says, since the time that school divinity, i.e., scholastic theology, began to flourish, there hath been a common opinion maintained as well by divines as by diverse other learned men which affirms mankind is naturally endowed and born with freedom from all subjection and at liberty to choose what form of government it please, and that the power which any one man hath over others was at first bestowed according to the discretion of the multitude. This tenant was first hatched in the schools, i.e. among the scholastics, and hath been fostered by all succeeding papists, i.e. Roman Catholics, for good divinity. The divines also of the Reformed churches have entertained it, and the common people everywhere tenderly embrace it. Filmer thinks this is bad, uh, and he wants to argue against it, and so he claims it's not to be found in the ancient fathers and doctors of the primitive church. It contradicts the doctrine and history of the Holy Scriptures and the constant practice of all ancient monarchies and the very principles of the law of nature. So when Locke responds to this, what he is responding to is a view that goes all the way back to the scholastic era. This is conceded by Filmer, uh, is shared among Roman Catholics and Calvinist theologians in his own day, and had popular support. It was the view of the common man, at least according to Filmer. Um, And so Locke does things like he quotes scripture quite a lot. Um, Some people have read that cynically, like, oh, well, everybody quoted scripture back then. But he has to. He has to, based on how Filmer outlines this. He has to actually 
genuinely think he's offering a good reading of scripture. Whether or not he is, is certainly another question, but um, I think we should take him sincerely. And of course, his appeal to the law of nature, you can see that right there. And he even does uh, quote at least two scholastics, um, uh, especially Richard Hooker, uh, the Anglican uh, theologian and Calvinist. Um, and then uh, he cites Robert Bellarmine, um, but he actually means uh, Francisco Suarez. But, but he does uh, actually defend Suarez's position as well. And you can find similar views. If you keep going, going back, you can go to John Fortescue, uh, talks about legitimate government being a government that, where the laws have the consent of the governed. Um, the, these sorts of liberal ideas are there. Uh, what's interesting, and, and you know, to give a, a, a bit of a defense of the people I, I push back against, uh, is that I just don't think there's enough nuance. So to me, American li- liberalism has this specific theological foundation. It has an inherent skepticism towards absolute state power that you don't see, for example, in the liberalism of the French Revolution, uh, which had the rallying cry, ni dieu ni maître, no God, no master. Um, that's a very anti-religious sort of liberalism. That exists too. That's real. And you know, by the 21st century, we've had a conflux of genuine atomistic individualism, in some cases, genuine hostility towards religion. And that might be the liberalism people are interacting with today, but that's just not the whole story. Um, And I think this older version, um, at least from my opinion, to be an American and a conservative is to be a certain kind of liberal. It's to be this kind of liberal. Uh, It's to defend these sorts of principles and the, the constitutional apparatus of government that that came out of it and that is consistent with it. How does, um, I guess you, you kind of maybe answered it a little bit in your last point, but you, you quote in your paper um, the usual suspects, Deneen, Hazoni, yeah. Adrian Vermeule, and uh, others. Um, but what, um, like if, if you were to give them the best, you know, wish them the best motivation in why they wrote. Yeah. Like, what are they? Why is there an influx of these books, arguments, uh, articles going back and forth, and first things in other places? That what are they seeing? What are they reacting to? Yeah. So I, I guess, like my most charitable side is that they are just projecting, you know, American progressive liberalism. You know, we use the term liberal in politics generally to mean someone on the left, right? Whereas historically, that's not really how the term gets used. But I think they're kind of just taking that and the sort of things they don't like today that are associated with that. And they want to give a sort of, you know, an intellectual rebuttal. Um, And they want to trace it back, find out where did it come from and give people an alternative. Um, So that's that's the most charitable take I can give. Um, It's hard for me to be very charitable, though, frankly, because the facts of the matter are so opposite of how, especially someone like John Locke, but not just Locke, just, you know, the liberalism of the time, of the founding fathers, um, and and things like history. You know, so I mentioned John Fortescue. Uh, Hazoni, as his alternative, he advocates what he calls Anglo-American conservatism, and gives this long line of figures he invokes. He doesn't actually quote very many of them at all. But he says, all these people, this is what I mean. And he starts with John Fortescue as if this is the originator. And then they cites him against the idea that just government requires the consent of the governed. It's literally page one of his work on the government of England. He says, this is the difference between uh, a royal kingdom and a royal and political kingdom. And he likes the latter. And he says, in the latter, the laws have the consent of the governed. Um, So it's 
I don't know. Maybe he's just dealing with secondary sources that have misled him. Um, but it doesn't seem like he's literally opened the book to page one. So also what's interesting to me, I mean, that that's a good response, but it, it, it seems, I mean, these aren't stupid people. No. And it, it seems like they're responding to something in the uh, zeitgeist, you know, the spirit of the age yeah. that they're, they're wanting to respond. And But you, one thing you double down on your in your paper, both, I think, introduction and conclusion, is that the slipperiness of the word liberalism. Yes. And you quote multiple people who yep. have show problems with just what, what does it mean? Nobody really knows what it means. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and so is it time for another word or is it time, like, because not everybody's going to have the ability or the opportunity. Your paper's very good. Yeah. But it, it it's quite historical and in depth, and 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 not everybody's going to have the mental furniture to have the ability to to work through some of these like like yeah. you did. So what what is um, it, it it seems like there's I'm not sure you know like uh, intellectuals debating other intellectuals at this point. Yeah. is getting to the to the core of what the issue is. Well, to be fair to Hizoni. I think his Anglo-American conservatism basically is a kind of liberalism. Um, so he, you could argue that that's what he's doing. He's trying to come up with a, a more palatable term. Now, there's aspects of it that I, I don't like, but I don't really get into those details. I'm, I'm more trying to deal with the, the history of ideas claim. Um, I, there's a few reasons why I don't think we need a new word. Um, a, I just like lost causes, I suppose. <laughs> so yeah. there's, there's that there's that <laughs> side of it that I I will if I think something is is genuinely good and people are getting it wrong, I am more apt to to go to bat for it um, than to just throw it away. Um, but what I what I kind of bring up, and I do think I can point to this in these sources, is that there's something lost. All right, when if you think, well, I I want a lot of these ideas, but Liberalism has gotten this bad rap lately, which it certainly has. And I think this is probably another factor uh, in academia. Um, it's just assumed, just like people assume capitalism is per se, you know, by definition bad. They presume that about liberalism or ne- it used to be neoliberalism, but now it's just all liberalism. This is really common um, in intellectual circles, but it's not grounded in actual scholarship or history. And we lose something. All, all these figures, like I, as a Christian, especially, I think there's a deep Christian root, uh, you know, story here. And I don't want someone getting the impression that in order to be a Christian today, so one of the alternatives would actually came out better than I expected. But there was a panel on Christian nationalism, and this guy Stephen Wolf he wrote a book, um, a defense of Christian nationalism. Actually, really nice guy. And his his book, what it come, what it amounted to, I would describe as a sort of um, soft Protestant integralism. That would be my my term for it. In that uh, they're just pointing out that you know what some of the state constitutions had established churches uh, originally. Uh, so you know the yeah the federal constitution, the First Amendment says you know uh, Congress shall make no law to establish religion um, or or limit the free exercise thereof. Um, but they left it to the states, and and they are and they argued again rightly that uh, there was this presumption that. You know, our system, you know, requires religion and virtue, or at least virtue, and they presume that came from religion. Um, so there's there's some side to that, but uh, what they lose is that a lot of the, like, religious principles that were being assumed at the time were just natural law. 
Um, and they, you know, in making a very true story and pointing to these points, uh, they could lead people into some problematic situations where now we got to have, you know, we talked about banning books uh, last last week on the, the program, but now we got to make sure we have only, you know, we're going to ban all these bad books in schools. And there's some books that maybe shouldn't be in schools, but, but it should be on a different, there should be a different standard for the conversation instead of saying, well, I've declared that not properly Christian. Um, I hope Christians can learn to read stuff that they aren't always going to agree with. And, you know, being a good Christian, I think, means using your mind um, and being wise and prudent. Um, So I think something gets lost in that um, you get these distorted pictures of what does it mean to be a good American? What does it mean to be a good politically conscious Christian? When you take a whole option off the table or you poison the well in this way, uh, saying, you know, this is what liberalism is, and it actually bears no resemblance to, his, you know, liberalism in history, uh, other than maybe some very contemporary versions. And you say, and then these people are the originators of it. And a lot of them um, might be far closer to what I think would be a a far more careful and responsible view. And so now people are, you know, they're reading the new book and the new book's telling them not to read the old books. And so when they don't read the old books, well, they're not going to see all these very interesting things uh, that these, you know, very intelligent people. I will say this. uh, I don't mean this as an insult, but um, people in the present, you know, a, a book may be a bestseller today. That does not mean that it's going to stand the test of history. A book like John Locke's Two Treatises on Government stands the test of history, which tells me that he was a really smart guy. <laughs> Doesn't I have disagreements with John Locke. I'm sure. not a Lockean myself, but um, there's something valuable there. There is, it, it, you know, Jesus says that the true scribe of the kingdom brings forth treasures both new and old. Um, we can't just be content with the flavor of the month, um, even if it has all of the rhetoric of either being, uh, you know, good Christian vision or good conservative vision. I think uh, responsible, wise Christians need to draw from our entire history and from God's work throughout history and through gifted people throughout history. That's hard work to do. I don't expect everyone to do it, but that's why I think it's important that I write a paper like this, you know, so that maybe somebody else can just read my paper and they can get an idea of what this is. Well, this is your concrete example of what C.S. Lewis was writing about on reading old books. Absolutely. Let the clean sea breeze of the past blow through our minds. And for, what does he say? For every one um, contemporary book, you read two or three older books, you know, to kind of compare to. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, concrete example, Dylan. Yeah. He he also gives the example of uh, uh, how reading old books helps correct us from the mistaken assumptions we have in the present. He says, you know, books from the future would be just as good, but we don't have any of those, (laughs) right? right? And and in fact, when you read an old book, you also very quickly identify assumptions that you know to be mistaken. So there's there's a side at which, like, I don't think people should be as afraid, although some of it, if you go back far enough, the English gets a little old, and so it might be cumbersome to read. So I get that. But a lot of this stuff, like Locke is actually pretty accessible. He's interesting. Uh, Yeah, it might be a challenge to read through some of it, but like, it's a rewarding challenge, like reading any, you know, difficult book. And you're going to encounter things that will sound bizarre to you because now they are bizarre, maybe. Maybe they're bizarre because they challenge our assumptions today, but maybe they're bizarre because they just really are bizarre and we move beyond it. And I don't think that you're going to just get brainwashed by John Locke. If anything, I, you know, I, I just don't think people are reading him at all uh, or reading him enough. Take and read, everyone. Uh, let's call it a wrap here. 
Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Dan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Dan Huger. We'll see you next week. Thank you.